You know, rest is one of the most sought-after commodities. Maybe you think that because I talk about doing laundry and because I'm talking about rest, maybe somebody's been on vacation. But, you know, rest is one of those uh, sought-after commodities in life today. I mean, people purchase vehicles. They purchase homes. They purchase toys. They even make trips to achieve that rest. Special places are built. Uh, so that you can go there and, and they're, they're designed for rest. They, they call them resorts. Where people pay top dollar to experience rest from our hectic lives. Rest. You know, advertisers really appeal to the need and the desire for people to have rest. Some people may even go to a therapist, pay huge amounts of money so that they can, uh, in hope of finding some rest... But nothing compares to the rest that we're going to find in our passage today. Nothing compares to it. It doesn't cost a thing. The price has already been paid. You don't have to go anywhere to find it. And it is the ultimate in experience the rest, the refreshment, the fulfillment that people are longing for. We need it. And we want it. And the rest that I refer to is the complete rest that is found only in Jesus Christ. You know, some time ago there was a group of tourists. They were visiting the city of Rome. And um, they came to this enclosure where there were some, some chickens that were pinned up there. And the guide was, was talking to them and telling them about these chickens. And he said, these are very unusual and distinctive chickens. He said that they happened to be descendants from the rooster that crowed the night that Peter denied Christ. Well, these tourists were very much impressed. You know, tourists will believe just about anything. So one man from England, he looked at these chickens and he said, Oh my, what an amazing pedigree these chickens have. Well, the American, he was standing there, and immediately he reached for his checkbook, and he said, how much do they cost? And there was an Irish fellow, he turned and, to the guide, and he said, but let me ask you, do they lay any eggs? He wasn't interested in apostolic succession, he was interested in apostolic success. And I think in our church today... The attitude many people have toward the Christian faith is just like this. We want to know something. Is the gospel for me right now? Can the gospel do anything for me right now? Does it have anything to say that is helpful about my problem with nervous tension? Can it help me with that? Can it aid me in the matter of feeling inferior? Is there anything in the gospel that it can do for my terrible habit of anxiety and worry about things when they don't go right? Because, folks, these are the problems that more desperately affect our lives than any other. Oh, yeah, we're concerned about terrorism, and we're concerned about the financial markets and maybe even the high cost of health care. But it's these kinds of things... The problems with our nervous tension, our anxiety, our inferiority, maybe resentment or anger that actually take their bitter toll on us day after day after day after day. We need to know 
Does Christ offer anything to help us with that? Read with me, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 4. I want to read down through verse 11. And I kind of believe that the word rest is important today. Today is the Sabbath. But also because in our passage, the writer of Hebrews mentions the word rest ten times in eleven verses. He says, therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we have believed, we, excuse me, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, therefore since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience... He again fixes a certain day today saying through David after so long a time it just as it has been said before today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has he has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. And I thank you, Father, for how it speaks to our hearts. Father, I ask in this moment, in, the, in the, this time that we have together, that your Holy Spirit would pierce our hearts. That you would cut away the hardness of our hearts. And Father, that our hearts would be tender toward you. And that in this moment, Father, we would respond in faith. Knowing that you are true. That you are holy. That you are above all things. Father, we love you. Guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, drawing near to God takes action on our part. We have to do something. We have to draw near to God. While drifting along, (laughs) drifting along is the result of doing nothing With regard to God's word. We hear God's word. We hear it preached. And many times we do nothing about what we've heard. 
In this sense, then, our author here, he challenges his readers to be diligent. He says, be diligent to enter that rest. Be diligent. Make every effort. Make every effort to enter into that rest. See, we cease from all our efforts in the flesh, but we actively strive to do God's will in the power of His Spirit. So resting from our fleshly efforts and striving to do God's will are not in contradiction with each other. To be clear, the Sabbath, the day of rest is based on the completion of God's work. Six days he worked, he he spoke the world into being, he created all that has been created and will ever be created, he created in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested his work being completed. And so our rest is a rest based upon the completion of Christ's work of redemption, a rest for everyone who believes. If I didn't know better, I'd think y'all were resting and maybe even asleep. Because when I say that our, our rest is based on Christ's finished work of redemption, it means I can add nothing to that. He's done it all for me. He is the one who has taken care of my business with God. And I love that. See, we rest from striving to please God in our own strength. And we rely upon the work which he has done at Calvary as he bled out for you and for me. We rely on that work that has been finished and the work that he continues to do as our high priest. See, there are very good reasons why God's people should make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by following the same example, the same pattern of disobedience. Folks, if an entire nation, if an entire nation and generation of Israelites failed to enter into that rest and they died in the wilderness, they died in the the desert, never receiving the promise then there must be a very real danger for us. I mean, those on the Gulf Coast, they just experienced a taste of this tropical depression, Cindy. You know, but several years ago, whether it was Hurricane Katrina or Ike or or one of the others, a lot of devastation was experienced. I mean, some remained in their homes and they died because of it. They simply did not believe that the danger was as great as they were told. In the same way, we may read about the failure of the Israelites. And we recognize that they fell short. That they did not receive the promise. They did not enter the rest. And they took their warning too lightly. And we have that looking back on it from experience. And we see that example of disobedience that was there. And yet we don't learn anything from it. We need to listen to Paul's words of warning based on the failure of that generation. 
We read over here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are at that end point. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. See, we've been encouraged. If you look back in in Hebrews chapter 2, just a couple of pages, it says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. I mean, we're encouraged to expend more effort to attain the rest which is before us. Israel's failures should alert us to the dangers. But that's not the only indication of our need to draw near to our great high priest. See, God's word, it exposes our sin. It exposes our weaknesses so that we then see our great need to turn to our high priest. When we read God's word, we recognize, I don't measure up to that. I don't live that consistently. I don't live that day in and day out. So I need to go to the high priest and I need forgiveness of my sins. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. That Jesus Christ died for. And we rest in that. That we are sealed until the day of redemption. Verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and active. I love that. I mean, we read these words in the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that was in the beginning became flesh, the incarnation. He became a man and dwelt among us. See, our Lord Jesus became the living word. He in himself is life. And as the creator, he's the source of all life. It's not something dead. It's not something we have to put batteries in. He is living. He is powerful. It says he is is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul wrote this. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power. It is the power of salvation. It is the power behind the the saving of men and women. It is the power behind it. It is the living word. It is Jesus Christ. Peter said this, he said, For you have been born anew, not from perishable, but from imperishable seed, through the living and enduring Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. Have you ever watched some of those commercials uh, for cleansers? And they they talk about the, the, you put this product on there and it does all the cleaning by itself. You know, most cleansers are like a scrub brush. I mean, they will just sit there until you put what my dad used to call elbow grease on it and start scrubbing like mad, and then it'll work. But what we need to understand is the Word of God is not like that. 
The word of God is not like that. It's different. It just needs to be released. It's like having a lion that's been caged and you just turn it loose. The word of God is powerful. We need to turn it loose. We need to turn it loose. We have it here and we have it here. But we need to turn it loose. We need to allow God's word to do its work. You know, over in Romans 10, verse 13 and following, it says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? I am so glad that I'm part of a church family that sends out. I'm thankful that Jim and Monica McDougal are in Kenya, Africa today. Being a blessing to people. Sending the word out. What a joy. He goes on to say, Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. See, Jesus is the light of the world. And at his incarnation, when he came in the flesh... He exposed the darkness. He exposed the darkness. And the written word originates from God. And it too is alive. It too exposes sin for what it is. You know, as Adam and Eve, they were naked before God. So the scriptures take away all of our fig leaves before God. You know, the Word of God, I would say, is something like an MRI. I mean, it exposes what is going on in your body beneath the surface, beneath the skin. It reveals the likely source of some pain and makes it obvious if surgery might be the proper course of action. That's what God's Word does to our spirit. It reveals what's under the surface. And we don't always like to hear that. We don't like to see the ugliness of our cancer. But brothers and sisters, it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be known. We need to come to the great physician and be healed. Here in our text, the word of God exposes our sin so that we can see how desperately we need him. And the purpose is so that we would draw near to him. See, in the book of Hebrews, the the author highlights the importance of God's word. The importance of God's word. It reveals God to us, but it also reveals us as sinners, as weak, as in great need before God. See, it holds us before the hope of our salvation. And it warns us. Of the dangers that are facing if we follow the example of those who walked in disobedience. See, if the word of God is as important as our author claims it is. Then we should expect that we will come under attack. We should expect to come under attack if we hold up the word of God and we say this is the word of God. The enemy will not like that. You will come under attack from the enemy, from Satan. Does God really say? Yes, he does. 
God has spoken. He has given his word. You see, we will come under attack by the world around us. Because they don't want their sin exposed. We will come under attack by the culture in which we live. And we will come under attack by our own flesh. But listen. The Bible was not written to make us feel good about ourselves. It is written to expose us for what we are. And it is written so that we might know who Jesus is and what he is. And it's written to turn us to him, die to ourself, and live in his power. See, our culture today totally rejects absolute truth. And so it rejects God's word as absolute truth. Our culture would say, if there is any truth, it is our truth. What, that which is true for us. But it may not be true for other people. And in that, the teaching of Scripture cannot be embraced as God's full and final revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And our culture also claims that we don't need to pay careful attention to it. Although the author tells us that we should. See, the result is that this sin-exposing power of God's word is denied... And it is ridiculed just like the salvation that it sets forth. See, if we will embrace God's word as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us and encourages us to do, then we will fly directly into the face of what our culture believes. Is it any wonder that the absolute values of Scripture are being cast aside? Not only by the unbelieving world, but also by many who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. See, many people who profess to know Christ are not so sure that the Bible is absolute truth. They're not so sure that what God said as the standard for marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime... They're not so sure that's absolutely true. They're not so sure that homosexuality is a sin. They're not so sure that the distinctive roles that God designs and has assigned to men and women speak to us and are valid for today. But let's listen to God as he speaks to us through his word. Because this is a significant portion of scripture, of revelation for us. Folks, you need to understand, when we ignore God's word, we begin to drift. When we ignore God's word, we begin to drift. You know, may God draw us near to himself as we hear and we listen to his word. And as we come to our great high priest to help us in our time of need. I mean, at the very core of this, we must stop trusting in our works. 
Stop trusting in our works and begin trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. See, as Paul puts it in Romans 4, 5, he says, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So when our author talks about entering into God's rest, this is very important. He's not talking about believers learning to trust God in trials so that they will experience his inner peace. Rather, he's talking about God's salvation under the imagery of rest in line with the Old Testament. He's warning his readers about the dangers of being associated with God's people. The dangers of being associated with God's people, but missing his salvation. Because they didn't respond in faith to the message. You remember this story? They were delivered from Egypt. They went out. They were in the wilderness. They came to the, the, the point of, of taking over and going into the promised land. And they, 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 they scared themselves. They, they said, man, they're like giants and we can't go that. We can't, we can't have faith in God that God gave this to us. And he says, you're going to go another round for 40 years until all of this generation dies except those that wanted to go. They missed the promise. They missed his salvation. But the ones who had faith entered. The ones who had faith entered the promised land. Let me quickly offer you a couple of applications here. The first one is this. Cultural religion, general belief in God and maybe even in Jesus won't save anyone. To say that you believe in God, even the demons believe in God. To be saved, we have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, it's not enough to grow up in the church. It's not enough to, to have a general belief in God and in Jesus Christ. We've, been, we've heard the gospel all of our lives. And intellectually, you may even believe in Jesus and that he died for your sins. But intellectual belief will not cut it. Amen. Saving faith trusts personally in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for my sins. What Jesus Christ has done for me. He took me from where I was to where I am, and I'm thankful for that. But I couldn't get here on my own. He saved me. Saving faith believes that God will be gracious to me in the judgment because I'm covered with the blood of his son Jesus. It's his righteousness, not mine. That is imputed to me as I stand before the Almighty, as I stand before God, it will be the blood of Christ that He sees, not my righteousness, not my works, not anything that I've done. See, make sure that your hope of heaven is not based on your parents' faith. Make sure that your hope of heaven is on the fact, is not on the fact that you hang out with Christians in a church building. 
Make sure that that your salvation, your rest is guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ and that you have a relationship with God through him. See, beware of this false peace that comes with a cultural religion. You're not saved because you're an American, because you were born in this country. You're saved when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, people are encouraged. They're encouraged to invite Jesus into their hearts. And they're told that they have eternal life. And they will never lose it. What they are not told is that they must repent of their sins. What they're not told is that God is the one who changes their hearts. And as a result of this, current studies show that there is virtually no difference between the way evangelicals think and live and the way the rest of the world thinks and lives. General cultural religion doesn't cut it. Saving faith is a matter of our heart towards God, not of outward religion. I mean, God looks at our hearts, not the outward performance of religious duties. You know, salvation is that that heart surgery that replaces our heart of stone, the heart that doesn't care, the heart that is apathetic with a heart that is tender toward God, toward the things that he desires. I mean, if you're saved, you know that your heart is different than it was before. It's not that you never sin now, but rather that your attitude towards sin is different. You used to love it, now you hate it. Before you didn't care about the things of God, and now you love Him and you love His Word. See, saving faith is always obedient faith. And I'm not talking about sinless perfection. No one lives perfectly this side of heaven. But a person who is growing in obedience to God's word is a person whose faith is genuine. They are desiring to please God. But it's not just some cultural religion. You know, saving faith rests completely on the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we're depending on anything in ourselves to get into heaven, we've not entered into his rest. Don't trust in your faith. Trust in Christ. Put your faith and trust in Christ because God saves us by his grace and it's based on the merit of Jesus Christ, not on anything I've done, not on anything you've done. See, faith simply looks to Christ and relies on him alone. And out of this passage... I get that saving faith is effortless in one sense. But in the other sense, it requires diligent perseverance. I mean, there's a little bit of irony in here. He says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. It almost sounds like an oxymoron. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let's work hard in that moment of doing nothing. Entering into that rest... 
And while salvation is a gift that we passively receive, there's also an active responsibility on our part to lay hold of it. We must rest from our works, but be diligent to enter into Christ's true rest. If, let me put it this way, you can drift into hell without any effort. Just go with the flow of the world, go with your flesh, go with the devil, and you're going to get there. You don't have to paddle upstream if you're going to hell. I'm not saying hell's in that direction. But if you want to go to heaven, you're going to, it requires diligence and watchfulness. This is what Jesus said in Luke 13, 24. He said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. I don't want any of you to miss heaven because you're depending upon membership in this church to get you to heaven. I don't want anybody here to think, well, if I give more to the church, if I do this, if I do that, you cannot make God love you any more than he already does. And the way that you enter into his rest is by entering into the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as he died for our sins. I don't want anyone to miss that. It's so simple, but so difficult for us. Be diligent in seeking God's rest through his word. Don't fall short of it. See, saving faith results in great confidence in God. In present trials, but also great hope in God for the future eternal joy. I mean, the rest spoken of here is a present reality. But it's also a future hope. It's also in the not yet. I mean, we... We talk about this, and as Paul said, he said, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it also includes, as he goes on to say, that we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Oh, we need some perseverance, people. Perseverance brings about proven character and proven character brings about hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, that future hope that we have is that on that day He will wipe every tear from our eye. There will be no more mourning. There will be no pain. There will be no more death. Hallelujah. You know, today maybe... Maybe you came in here feeling comfortable in your standing before God because you're associated with this church or because you serve in some way in the church or because of anything you do. And I hope that you are now disturbed because your standing with God is on shaky ground. To base your hope for heaven on any outward religion is to have a false hope. But on the other hand, if you came in here feeling disturbed because you were despairing of your propensity towards sin, 
your desire for that. You knew that if your salvation depends on your performance, you'd never qualify. I hope that you are comforted with the good news that you can enter God's eternal rest through faith in Christ alone. Folks, we need to fear the unbelief. The unbelief that goes with cultural Christianity. We just came back from being in a place where they have great massive cathedrals that sit empty because of unbelief. Because it's a cultural religion. It's not about a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in the Savior. See, there's only really one thing to fear, and that's unbelief. I mean, Christ has given us the victory over the enemy. He's given us the victory over death. He's given us the victory over the grave. He's given us the victory over everything in our life that would set us back. The only thing that can really get to us is unbelief in the Word of God. Because His promises are true. Fear unbelief in those promises of God. Because as long as you're trusting in the promises of God, you can be completely fearless in the face of anything.